Hello and welcome to Coloured Souls. My name is Jamie Gladstone and here we will discuss current affairs in race policy, developments in education, African, Caribbean and South American history, as well as important texts in post-colonial literature. In the United Kingdom, the month of October is dedicated to black history a month to celebrate all of the contributions that black Britons have made to the country. Whilst it is of course an important part of the calendar, there are limits to its potency. In this episode, we will explore the value of black history and try to unpack the question, through the use of Black History Month, are we still being missold our history? For those listeners outside of the UK, during October, Black History Month is celebrated in Britain. Although there have been a dedicated Black History Month every February in the USA since 1970, it was not officially celebrated in the UK until 1987, when the activist Akiaba Adai Sebo, who, at the time, was the coordinator for the special projects of the Greater London Council, organised first. Initially celebrated only in London, the celebration has grown, spread across the whole UK, and is now celebrated annually throughout each October. The main aims of Black History Month are to celebrate the achievements and contributions of black people not just in the UK, but throughout the world, and also to educate the nation on black history. Now, although awareness and diversity are always positive, though we've taken a month out of the calendar to dedicate to sharing and discovering information about the contributions of African diasporic people in Britain raises a number of issues for me. One of the main being the continuation of segregation. By confining African diasporic history to a singular month, a short academic month by the way, being a month that most universities start and a month which contains a week's holiday for primary and secondary schools, the message being sent out to the nation is that there is only value in black history when you are permitted to discuss it. That is not to say that black history is completely ignored by every non-black person throughout the rest of the year, but throughout my time in the classroom, there has always been a mad scramble to find something in October in order to make sure that the minimum was being covered. This usually included a quick scan of Twinkle, the school resources website for something about Martin Luther King or Rosa Parks, neither of whom are actually British. Whilst the month certainly raises awareness for those that are not aware of the contributions that black Britons have made to the country, it does very little for the decolonization of the curriculum, nor does it do anything about decentering Europe as the point of academic authenticity. Throughout the month, particular people in black history are highlighted, such as Mary Seacole. And whilst it is of course a positive thing to celebrate the achievements of African diasporic people in Britain's history, we still see a very narrow view of their true value, and tend to rely too heavily upon famous names that achieved public acclaim, and not the ongoing daily interactions which characterise life. In order to do this, Britain's relationship with Africa and the diaspora must be brought to the forefront, and not just in October, but throughout the entire year and woven into the curriculum content in just the same way that Britain's history is intertwined with the histories of Africa and the Americas. Whilst we hear of specific names each year, many times these tend to be Americans and do not reflect the children sitting in the classroom or the majority of adults walking Britain's streets, thus illuminating the value of black Britons and our value in historic and modern Britain. So let's briefly explore a couple of examples. So England, before creating a union with Scotland, had significant ties to various African countries and, vicariously, through the transatlantic trade and enslaved African people, the Caribbean. In the 17th century, British traders brought products such as weapons to Africa in exchange for raw materials and enslaved persons. 
These traders often were protected by the government through the creation of monopolies, which meant that their trading company had exclusive rights to trade with a certain region or for a certain product. In 1672, for example, the Royal African Company was given a monopoly on the trade of enslaved Africans. Many of these enslaved Africans were brought to the New World, that is the USA today, to the British sugar colonies of the Caribbean, or in the 13 colonies, which were the 13 original colonies set up in the, on the west coast of America. At this time, England was expanding its powers across the African continent. To put this into perspective, Scotland joined the Union in 1707, thus becoming part of the Kingdom of Great Britain alongside England and Wales. What this basic example demonstrates is that the history of Britain's connection to the African diaspora is long and complex. This is a history that did not begin with the large-scale trade in enslaved Africans, that did not begin with the arrival of the SS Windrush. It is a joint history that goes beyond the binary of oppressor and oppressed. The centuries of interaction between Britain and the African diaspora is exactly the reason why we see so much diversity in the streets of Britain, why our country looks the way it does. And whilst there may be some people that believe that whiteness is synonymous with British purity, the history of Britain tells a much different story. From the African members of the Roman Empire, not enslaved Africans but key members, this includes Lucius Septimus Severus, who was the first African emperor of the Roman Empire in AD 193. With African diasporic members of the Roman Empire being present in Britain before the Angles or the Saxons, who did not arrive until several centuries later, Black British history then takes on a different meaning from one that is usually discussed in schools during the month of October. Add into this the presence of an African man of the church by the name of Hadrian, who was the abbot of Canterbury between 670 and 710. This is not the same Hadrian of Hadrian's Wall, who was a Roman Empire, by the way. Saint Hadrian, as he has come to be known, is believed to have been born in what is modern-day Libya, and made his way to England via Italy, when England was said to be an, I quote, wild and semi-pagan land. In addition to the knowledge he passed on through literature and teaching, Hadrian also had a considerable impact on the Anglo-Saxon liturgy. He spread the use of music in church services, which had, until his time, been confined to Kent. It is also due to Hadrian that the feasts of several central Italian saints were introduced to the calendar of the Anglo-Saxon church. St. Hadrian died in 710 and was buried at his Canterbury monastery. His remains, or relics, were discovered in 1091. Numerous miracles were attributed to Hadrian and his feast day is celebrated on the 9th of January, keeping alive the memory of the man who played such an important role in turning the Anglo-Saxon church into an intellectual powerhouse of the early medieval world. Hadrian also introduced his classes in Canterbury to the elegant Latin riddles of the late Roman writer Symposius, who was likely also African. One of Hadrian's students, Aldhelm, was inspired to devise longer versions, and from that moment, riddles really took off in English culture. Later, a tradition of riddling in the vernacular developed, which became more risque as time went on. An early testimony to the bawdy and sometimes smutty humour of the English. Some have wonderful vignettes of the natural world, others have the saucy observations of Donald McGill's seaside postcards. Through this mix of vigorous colloquialism, earthy views of sex and excruciating puns, you can trace a line all the way through English culture. And it all begins with Hadrian. So with this being said, some of Britain's religious and cultural foundations were constructed through blackness. This aside into Britain's history and the influence of one black abbot on the history of the church is being presented as just one part of the larger picture of British history. For a deeper dive into the history of black Britain, read David Olasoga's fantastic book, Black and British, A Forgotten History.
So what does this mean in the context of our discussion? For me, this highlights a past that is not being accurately represented in the public domain. Yes, the information is out there in scholarly papers, books and various websites, some with a paywall and some without. Where this is conspicuously missing, though, is in the public consciousness. I agree that through Black History Month we can draw on some of these sources in order to widen the scope of understanding, yet even during those 31 short days, not enough can be done. By confining this discussion to a singular month, we're still being sold a history divorced from that of Britain as a whole whilst being reminded of Britain as an expanded empire. Yes, we can draw on Stuart Hall's famous quote, we are here because you were there. And that message is still accurate for part of our collective history which takes into consideration slavery and colonialism. But it's in the collective nature of history that we find a deeper seated value of Africanness in British history. I've already mentioned the Africans in the Roman Empire, which implies migration and integration many centuries before Anglo-Saxon Britain and many more before Britain became a powerhouse in the trade of enslaved Africans. Black British history is more than Windrush, more than abolition, and more than the first black footballer to play for each of the home nation's football teams. It is all the parts that have been edited out in order to create an image of whiteness, an image of society that permitted formerly enslaved Africans and their descendants to become part of the nation, whilst still being marginalised economically, educationally and socially. This editing can be seen in the discussion of Britain's Industrial Revolution, where we as schoolchildren were, and mostly are, taught of all the intricate details of how the cotton mills and factories worked, the equipment, the Workers' Rights Act, the Child Labour Acts, but not about the 1.8 million enslaved Africans that were picking and processing the cotton on the American plantations, which fed the industry. Equally, the wider information of the cotton famine of the 1860s is not given sufficient salience. Whilst there is a popular narrative of the famine being caused by overproduction and contracting world markets, and it certainly played a part, the greatest influence was the American Civil War, in which the northern states of America blocked the southern states, who were still forcing enslaved Africans to work on the plantations, from exporting out of their ports. Now this may look like a drift into American history, but let's look at the years here. Britain abolished their own slave trade in 1807, with slavery being officially abolished in 1833. However, whilst the moral crusade against enslaved Africans was being very publicly waged against, for example, the Portuguese, Britain was very happy to purchase raw cotton that had been picked by the hands of enslaved Africans and their descendants in America. So whilst Britain were not actively enslaving African people as a nation, they were most certainly profiting from the bloodshed of their labour. The sanitised version of history that we are exposed to for the other 11 months of the year forms part of the wider accepted truth, making information like this appear to be an unwelcome challenge to the status quo. Thus ensues the argument about messing with history and trying to destroy the image of Britain, or with being woke in scare quotes. Although surely being awake to cultural issues and inequality is surely a good thing, but, but anyway. The value of the struggle for African diasporic people to be recognised as a significant part of Britain's history is and will be ongoing for a long time. With the vehement opposition to discussing Britain's position in the world, including the brutality of Britain's empirical regimes, change is slow. It is often during October, not exclusively but often, that the phrase, but it's in the past now, get over it, comes up. When you think about trauma, whether faced from an abusive adult as a child, sexual predator, or any other form of physical or emotional attack. Those scars last, and they take time to, I don't want to say heal, but become easier to live with. This trauma 
in the form of oppression, segregation, and the willful destruction of economies, epistemologies, and histories, does not and cannot disappear overnight. It's generational, and each of us feel and live this trauma in our own ways. On a rather glib level, this can be compared to Britain's exit from Europe. Whilst there are some nations, notably Jamaica, that are seeking to remove themselves from the clutches of Britain as a controlling power, Britain sought just the same from the European Union, and fought a campaign to imply that as a nation, we were being oppressed. What if the other member states had intentionally underdeveloped Britain in order to progress themselves over centuries, raped and pillaged in order to stamp their authority and then said, we are bigger and richer than you. What happened in the past is in the past. Get over it. Be quiet and behave. I can guess what the same section of society that believes that such actions were justified in the building of Britain's wealth would say to such a situation. Britain has a shared history with the African diaspora, and many African diasporic people to thank for the freedoms that we as a wider society have now. Aside from the obvious influx of wealth created from the enforced labour, there are members of parliament who have fought every barrier placed in their way to place themselves in what's traditionally been a space dominated by white men. Despite the numbers being low, there are educators challenging the status quo. Quick shout out to my tutors at Leeds Becky University that I worked with during my master's degree. We also have important names that have risked all for abolition, education equality, workers' rights, and many more social issues. Names such as Olodu Equianu, Walter Toll, Claudia Jones, Diane Abbott, Rose Hudson Wilkin, Sir Trevor MacDonald, Benjamin Zephaniah, to name only a few. People that should be integrated across the curriculum should be as prominent in the collective British consciousness as the famous white names. Black History Month has become overshadowed by its own publicity. And within this, the true value of black history does not fully shine. So what does this mean for the African diaspora living in Britain? For me, I see the month's current iteration as plagued by problems. The month itself, I believe, is still relevant to Britain as a society, as there remains a hesitance to integrate the full picture of British history in wider society. So we need to ensure that this month is used wisely. And that is the key. The wise use of the month as a way in for those who are unaware of black British history, as a way to see the importance of African diasporic influence in Britain. In the classroom, there needs to be more innovation in the way that the African diaspora is represented. That is not to say that an African-centred lesson will mean that everything else will be devalued, or that all history should be exclusively non-European. That's the scarcity mentality that appears to be dominating the classrooms at present. Afrocentrism can be used in a pluralistic sense, which integrates a number of pedagogies and epistemologies, the value of which would serve to enrich the experience of the class. Outside of the classroom, we have seen some great events which, I feel, should be made more permanent fixtures. In October of 2001, Black History Month of course, Sheffield hosted their first Afrocentric market in the city centre. Lasted a week, and the opening day was a mixture of poetry, music and speeches. The energy was amazing and a mixture of ethnicities in the crowd spoke volumes. The great shame here, though, is that a short walk through the city centre now shows that whilst the shops selling hair products and some fabrics remain, the rest are just a memory. There was an event scheduled for August of 2022 which was due to celebrate Jamaican independence, but due to a lack of funding and, I presume, wider interest, it was cancelled. Personally, I believe that the wider community simply could not see enough value in the celebration. Perhaps a greater understanding of what independence means to the people of Jamaican descent would draw more interest. 
Again, think about this in the context of Brexit. There are some voices that call the day Britain exited the Union Britain's Independence Day. And I'm sure that some people celebrate that in their own way. Now, it'd be difficult to include every Independence Day into our calendar because, goodness knows, Britain dominated a lot of countries at one stage. But an awareness of the impact that this has had on the freedoms of the people cannot be understated. It would be remiss to allow the oppressive nature of the regimes not to be explored, particularly in the context of where African diasporic people were then and where we are now. The danger that we face is still in representation. At every level of education, there are significantly low numbers of African diasporic people, the same in government, banking and many other sectors. Being represented during a single month is positive, but it's become all too easy to lock black history into those 31 short days. All too easy to perpetuate the same conditional tolerance that has characterised living in Britain as a person of the global majority. Having a month allows the conversation to start, but having a month also indicates that the only time to speak is during that month, that our forum for discussing our value is limited and only permitted when the ruling powers choose. Once November starts, we find the conversation ends, and black history is left to wander the hinterlands of Britain's selective memory alongside the genocides, wars, and famines supported by Britain's former leaders. The racism and segregation that formed part of daily life for many black communities in the late 20th century. The stop and search rules that criminalise people for driving whilst being black, or even simply walking whilst being black, or even existing whilst being black. The many lives that have been lost on the streets, victims of hatred. Their voices silenced and their flames extinguished as a wall of silence was erected and the justice system closed off for them. All the while, extreme far-right groups were, and to an extent still are, being protected. This is how black lives have been valued over the past few decades. And, of course, looking further back, there are countless atrocities over the centuries. This diminution of black history is a means by which our history is missold. It is in these atrocities that we are told lies our value. But look at the wider image. Look to the music, the nurses, the people on the ground that fight every day in the newspapers, academic journals, the workplace, the supermarket, outside the houses of parliament, to say simply that black lives matter. There has existed and still exists a counter-argument that all lives matter, and yes, all lives do matter, of course. But in our collective history, black lives have been expendable, wasted on the front lines to protect white soldiers, worked to their graves on plantations or tossed overboard to claim insurance money. African diasporic people have been chased, beaten, murdered in the streets and categorised as educationally subnormal in a system that chooses to sell us a history so biased and distorted that when we question it, we are gaslighted, ethnically and intellectually. So I will pitch this question to you once again. Are we being missold our own history during Black History Month? Thank you very much for joining me on today's podcast. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast app to be notified every time a new episode comes out. And I will speak to you soon.